Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back. My guest today is a child psychiatrist and she's a return guest to the program. And she and I had this casual conversation and there was this new way to look at the care we deliver that really caught my attention. And when I asked her, like, will you please do a podcast with me? She agreed to. So I'm happy to share that information with you guys today. Dr. Sarah Mohideen is the director of the Multidisciplinary Autism Program at the University of Michigan. She also is the fellowship training director of the Child Psychiatry Fellowship Program at Michigan Medicine and co-director of Behavioral Science Sequence at the University of Michigan Medical School. She is passionate about educating medical students, residents, fellows, and other physicians about childhood mental health and care of individuals with autism spectrum disorders and developmental disabilities across the lifespan. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Mohideen back to the podcast. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Good, thanks. Well, welcome back to the podcast. I've been doing this long enough now. I've had many encore guests, so it's fun to bring back folks, and I appreciate that. So we don't have to delve in a whole lot into your background, but I just wanted to know a little bit about where you are in your practice right now and sort of what's a day in the life of Dr. Mohideen look like? Oh, yeah, sure. So I'm still on faculty with the Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Division at the University of Michigan. So my time is primarily accounted for actually in running the fellowship training program. So we have 12 child psychiatry fellows. So we're like a mid to large range training program for child psychiatry. In addition to that, I run the behavioral science sequence for the medical school. So so that's the bulk of my time is really in education and teaching and training. And then I also direct the multidisciplinary autism program. I was on earlier with you to kind of talk about autism through the lifespan. So that's a big part of my work as well. And then more recently, I took on a role overseeing for Michigan medicine lists for the graduate medical education community. And so that's kind of a broad specialty outside of just psychiatry alone, but really kind of focusing on well-being for all, all the all the residents and fellows and interns through the institution. And there's a lot of them. There's like over 100 programs. So it's a pretty big. Wow. Oh, so it all of the peds, internal medicine, yeah. surgery. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Wow, yeah. that's a big endeavor. Yes. Yeah. I'm excited about it. I think, I think well-being is an important element. And I think hopefully we'll touch on some of these topics today, but I think the work that we do with patients is challenging. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think the struggle between like finding meaning in your work, especially I think in taking care of complex patients, which many of us do is hard. And then I think, especially for trainees, the hierarchy, the training aspect, like there's so many pieces that are a little bit different, I think, for trainees. 
Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm excited about that. I think it kind of like melds a lot of what I do together. So it's, it's fun. It's a new and exciting thing, but, but yeah, obviously the core is around childhood mental health. Yeah. Well, I love that you're sort of bringing it all together with the education and then working with, I would think of faculty and attending physicians out there were sort of like the wounded survivors. Exactly. I I think back (laughs) on my training and my early career, and it was just like you're in the trenches, head down and exhausted. And it, it just can't be a good training model. I mean, And the hierarchy, I always talk about it like training by intimidation and humiliation doesn't really bring out the best in you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I think, and I I think it's also rather than us being like, we walked uphill in the snow, barefoot both ways. And so that kind of mentality, I think there's a lot of us sounds like you're similar saying like the system is broken. Like this, this is not sustainable. We don't need to destroy people in order to make them good physicians. There are ways that we can help them prioritize their whole self during the course of becoming a physician and how much that plays a role in what you bring in the patient visit. Right, right. It's sort of like being in the military. You break them down and build them up. But yeah, in in that breaking down, I think you lose sometimes pieces of humanity, which Mm -hmm. what we try and bring to our patient care. And when you're wounded yourself, I mean, it's sometimes hard to bring your full game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think especially in the last couple of years, especially with COVID, I think people are frustrated. I think that frustration comes into the clinic space, the patient space. And I think that adds another level of challenge. Resources are more limited. People are more stressed. Their expectations on their physicians are so high. Yeah. Well, and then there's the sort of being questioned about your, about science and does, is it truth mm-hmm. all that? So you're, now your credibility is being challenged. And it, yet at the yeah. same time, people are desperate for your help. I mean, it's sort of a weird push pull, mm-hmm. you know? So, and then, then we have kids that are kind of caught in the middle. So that kind of, kind of brings us to our conversation today. And then you know, we've alluded to the fact that pediatricians, clinicians around the country, probably around the world are being challenged with this overwhelming mental health, emotional health need. And you hear it, there was a great story on, I want to say it was on 60 Minutes and these two young women talking about like, we just lost a year of our lives or two years. So these kids are anxious, they're sad, there's been a lot of losses, and they're showing up in our offices, the emergency mm-hmm. rooms are overwhelmed. I mean, I hear that all over the place and and in the on the medical floors, like eating disorder patients yeah. are just sort of coming out of the wor- woodwork. And we just don't, I, I don't know, it's hard to have the wherewithal and skills to manage that kind of distress. I mean, where, where do you start with that? Yeah, I I would say that in general, like when facing an overwhelming demand, it's really important to stay focused on where you can make an effort. So even for this, like this, what we're talking about here, it's something that I talk about with my child psychiatry trainees a lot. This idea that when someone comes into your office and they 
they were taken away from their biological parents. Now they're living with their grandmother. They're bullied at school and they have ADHD and learning problems. And you also see that the grandmother is totally overwhelmed, wow. doesn't know what, you know, so you approach a patient and you just see like, there's so much here. How do I like begin to scratch the surface of what needs to be addressed? So one of the main one of the main things I tell my trainees to focus on is to understand that you're really, for many of your patients, looking for a longitudinal approach to their care, right? Like you're, you're kind of thinking of where you want the outcome to be in five years and what would it take you to get there, right? So some of those things are going to be, so even if, if you're approaching this family that I just talked about, you're going to be thinking about interventions directly for the child, like addressing ADHD or anxiety, but you're also going to be addressing like the, the, like the surrounding layers around the kid. That includes like, how do you support the grandmother? How do you over time address trauma and loss? How do you address the system of what's going on at school? But not everything has to be achieved in a visit. Right. That's the piece that I think feels overwhelming. You feel like I need to fix this. I need to do it now. Right. Well, I think that's you and I've had this conversation and I it was just a huge aha for me because as you're talking, I'm thinking in the pediatrician mindset, we often approach. I look at my schedule and I've got a kid with ear pain and URI symptoms and diarrhea, complex mental. We, the mindset is fixing things. Mm-hmm. And with complex care, that isn't always possible. Right. I think with medical or I'm sorry, mental health issues, it's kind of that same reframe. Mm-hmm. And when you said these are not things that you can fix, I kind of sat back and went, what, what do you mean? <laughs> well, what am I supposed to do? I mean, isn't that my job? So how do you, how do you reframe that for your trainees? And I mean, here you have an audience of pediatric clinicians. I mean, how do you reframe that for us so we don't leave here going, yeah, but that's my job, isn't it? I think I, I guess what I say to my trainees is your job is to partner with the patient and family in the best interest of the child. That's really what I see to be the goal. The goal is to build a partnership and work towards change over time. And I, I think about in that conversation you and I were having, I was saying that we have had such a great partnership with my children's PDF and how meaningful that partnership is. I don't, I don't need her to like fix something in the moment, but I need to feel like I can go to her if I have problems. I know that she cares about my kids and if something is going to happen, she's going to help me think about it. She's going to help me game plan. She's going to lend her expertise to that space. And then it's kind of my and my kids job to take it from there. So I don't really see like what the pediatrician does and what what we do as child psychiatrists as being very different in that way. I think that approach and mindset is very similar, right? Like, you have a kid with asthma. You're not curing the asthma, right? Well, we're, we, we try. <laughs> you try, but I mean. We try. We want to. Uh, yes, but there are going to be lots of kids where you can't because there's going to be 
like how compliant are they with the medicines? How compliant are they with environmental triggers, with like using maintenance medication? Like there's so many different factors. So you're going to try to make things better. And right. those things stay, you're going to, you're going to deal with acute exacerbations on, tro- on top of like chronic underlying pathophysiology. So in a lot of ways, mental health is very similar. So they're going to have acute exacerbations of an illness, like anxiety, for example. In mental illness, really the underlying pathophysiology is a brain that's been changed by challenging situations. Sometimes that's something more severe, like trauma or neglect. But for other kids, it's it can be something as much as like difficulty with friendships or not feeling like your parents get you um, and the chronic stress of that. For some children, there's been a lot more published now on the chronic stress and brain changes when they have to deal with pervasive discrimination or racism, like how that changes a child. And these are some aspects in their environment that you're not going to be able to make a full scale change on. Right. That's where things like advocacy can be really important. Right. Like you want to make like big changes, address like environmental issues, public policy. But for an individual child, your ability to like move them out of a unsafe home, whether it's because that unsafe home is because of lead or it's because it's like a dangerous neighborhood. Like those are things you're not going to be able to change. In the same way, a lot of times with kids, when they're in a stressful situation, I mean, usually what I say to them is like, I wish that there are things, a lot of these things we could change. I guess there are some things we can and some things we can't. So how do we make better the things that we can? And I think especially in the disability space, I think for me, working with kids with disability and with autism really does help frame that for me because these are kids for whom, like, no matter what you do, it's like the autism isn't going to go away or the cognitive impairment isn't going to go away. And yet they can live lives that are really, really fulfilling and meaningful. Yeah, I I, I just did a podcast a couple weeks back with Dr. Kathy Steingass, and we were talking a lot about thinking about kids with disabilities and mental health. And so much of it about is helping them identify what are the dreams you have and how can I help you achieve those? Mm-hmm. And in doing podcasts now for, gosh, almost two years, the biggest thing I've heard from clinicians who I admire and parents and patients is they want to be listened to. And mm-hmm. one of our biggest jobs is not fixing, it's listening. Mm-hmm. What's important to you? Mm-hmm. And then how can I help you with that? And again, mm-hmm. like you said, I mean, you you can't fix autism, but you can help with social skills. You can help mm-hmm. with modulating sensory overwhelm. So there are things that we can do, but it depends on what's important to them. If they don't like wearing socks, okay, you don't have to wear socks. Mm-hmm. But if it's, I want to make friends, then okay, let's work on that. Yeah, I mean, an example I can think of is like, kid with ADHD and his medications, they always caused him side effects. They bothered him a lot. And one thing that I feel and I try to verbalize with my patients is I'm not the one who's taking it. You're the the one who's taking it. 
So your experience with it is so important and so valuable. And it's not your mom taking it, your mom who like really wants you to take the medicine every day. It's you. So what, what will it take for it to be worth it to you to kind of make change? And for this kid, I remember, I think I started seeing when he was 12, but I think when he was 15 or 16, he came to me and he said, you know, I know I told you and my mom I'd been taking my medications, but I really haven't. And I had figured as much from a lot of the conversations in the office. And he said, but I think I want to take them now because my friend said that I'm being really annoying. (laughs) And I realized that it was when I wasn't taking my medicines. I felt more like myself without them, but I realized that it was hard for, like, I care about my friends. I want to hang out with them. And if they're like not liking me, that's that's like a really important thing to me. So we had been focusing so much on school, which obviously is really important. But at the end of the day, it was not something that was like a value, like as high of a motivator of high value as that was to him. So that was something I think that over time, like when he got back on the medicines and forgot about it, right, it was like helpful to bring that back. Right. And that's why another thing I often say to my trainees is actually some of your most important visits are actually when things are going well Mm -hmm. with the patient, because you really want to understand what is going well, like what is making them feel happy or motivated? What were the things that led to that? So that if or when things don't go well again, like with chronic illness, things kind of ebb and flow. We can look back and remember what were the things that were going on that made things more sustainable or manageable in a certain period of time. It sounds like one of the things that you're talking about is utilizing patients' own insight Mm -hmm. about sort of their own personal ahas. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, my friend's saying, dude, you're like so annoying. Mm -hmm. And for him to appreciate that that meant more to him than turning in his homework. Mm-hmm. So the it's sort of like finding the carrot that mm-hmm. that works for the patient, but it's his own verbalization of what that carrot was, not yours. Right. Yeah. And so your job is to help kind of walk them down the pathway to that point mm-hmm. to help understand what it is that they want to be better or different. And then how can you, again, partner with them not like solve it for them. Like, how can you partner with them to achieve that? Yeah. So in listening to you, I'm thinking one is, this is a very skilled clinician who's good at kind of seeing the patient as a whole. And I'm guessing for many listeners, they're like, I wish that I could send all these patients that are struggling to Dr. Mohadeen and her colleagues because I didn't train as a psychiatrist and I don't have the skills that you do. But, you know, the reality is whatever we call it, whether it's mental health, emotional health, behavioral health, I mean, kids bring that with them. We can't parse it out. Mm -hmm. And there's just not enough of you guys to go around. So what do you think about how we promote partnership? Because it's going to look different in different communities. In Mm -hmm. Ann Arbor, where you are, U of M, you guys have lots of clinicians and maybe Mm -hmm. people can see child psychiatry, but I think in some of our rural parts of the state and other, I think in Idaho, they have what, maybe two child psychiatrists. What do we do to help these clinicians that are out there trying to be all the things? Mm -hmm. 
So I, I would say actually, I think in some ways I feel like pediatricians have like an advantage in that they know their patients and families over time in a way that it takes a much longer for us to do, right? Like, because we might see them at a moment in crisis. So it's, it's challenging for us to figure out like, what is this kid's baseline? What, what does well look like for them? It takes a long time for us to figure that out. As a pediatrician, you may already have that, right? Like if, especially in rural communities where you're their, you're their medical home, you're the one that they've been seeing. So you have more knowledge, like that kind of clinician knowledge of a patient than some of the rest of us do. I, the places where I do think it's more challenging is when, you know, your, which is true for a lot of pediatric practices, like your patient volume is really high and you're seeing lots and lots of patients. Then I think that will be much more of a challenge. I could absolutely see that. And I also think there, there is something to, it's, it's what you see in like, the beginning stages with well child visits, like because they're so frequent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? You really kind of get a sense of someone. But then as the kids age, right, the well child visits are much farther apart, right? It's much easier to lose track of a family. And so I have, I have wondered about that. Like, would there be value? But I especially think for kids with mental health concerns that you do, it, it isn't just that you see them when they're in crisis, you need to see them with some more regularity. Like if you were seeing them every three mm-hmm. months, even when they're well, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you would be surprised how much that knowledge of that patient, you're, how much you're going to rely on that knowledge right. when that patient is in crisis. Well, and I think sometimes that helps avert crises. And I think about patients that I've seen, oftentimes maybe we do the evaluation and then that that takes a lot of time. But once you sort of nail it down and then maybe you're going to try some medication and you're seeing them fairly frequently as you're trying to get to some stabilization point. And then, I mean, I would often see them back. Well, let's see you back in a month and then let's see you back in three. I, I often saw my patients with mental health concerns every three months. Mm-hmm. Partly because it also helps me keep tabs on their relationships. Like, and then you mm-hmm. could say, Hey, I know you guys were going to go to your grandma's for the summer. How was that? So mm-hmm. then you kind of know more about the patients. They trust you. It honestly makes it easier than if you're trying to cram everything into a, a 30 minute well visit. Like, okay, tell me how school went for the past year. Your friends, are you using drugs? Are you having sex? Mm-hmm. That's a lot to cover. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, by the way, are you depressed? Right. Yeah. I think using a chronic illness model, like you're saying, is an important framework that you're going to provide kind of a, a chronic care type way to thinking about your patients. And so that those regular visits, I think not only do they give you information, they also help build the relationship with the patient. Yeah. Plus, right. honestly, I think for me, it was fun. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes the patient and the family situations were difficult, but I was surprised the number of people that came regularly. I mean, I didn't have a lot of no-shows. I mean, yeah, it mm-hmm. happened in 
honestly, sometimes it was a relief, right? <laughs> like, yeah. oh, that one's going to be really hard and whew, they didn't come. But mm-hmm. you know, we all, th- to be honest, you know, we all have those patients you see on your mm-hmm. schedule and you're just like, oh, sigh, this is going to be so hard. Yeah. But when you get to know families and again, it's about relationship building mm-hmm. for me. And I've said this many times. I mean, that's where the fun is and the joy and mm-hmm. the and the reward, honestly. It's not mm-hmm. in the, I'm going to fix your ear infection. I mean, again, if you have a kid with chronic ear infections and you're riding the ride with the family, that's where the problem solving comes in. Mm-hmm. The detective work that I think that we're really good at, like, yeah, let's try and untangle what's going on. What are the triggers? Yeah. And just like you're saying, to, to really recognize I mean, I like when I meet a new patient and family, I just tell them, I, you guys have all been living with this problem for however long, like a year, maybe five years. I'm just getting to know you. So it's going to take me time to figure it out. Like there are going to be a lot of things that I won't get right at the beginning as I'm trying to understand what exactly is going on. So this idea of chronic illness model, I like that. And then sort of building the relationship over time. I think that idea that it's going to take multiple visits. And I think that would help clinicians too. Again, it's that fix it model. Like this isn't something you're going to fix with one visit. This is something that you're going to learn about over time. You're going to work on some of the fix the things that you can and then manage the things that are not, quote, fixable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think also, I think this idea of like a patient-physician partnership is also an important piece because I think when you look at compliance rates with medications and with treatments across all medical conditions, right, there's a wide range of compliance. That's also true in mental health conditions. So it's funny, I, I tell my trainees, I never expect that a patient is taking what I am prescribing them. Even patients that I know really well, I just ask them, like in every visit, I will ask like, so what are you taking right now? Mm -hmm. Like what medications are you taking? And you have to be able to ask it in a way that it doesn't feel like you're going to get in trouble if you say, well, I'm, I'm doing the best I can, or maybe even couching it in. A lot of times when I um, meet with my families, they find it difficult to take medications regularly. Have you found that to be a problem or have you had side effects that are keeping you from taking it? Yeah. So you sort of let them off the hook that they're not being somehow being bad by not following your directions, right? Yeah. I also will add sometimes with other patients that I know, I, that's, I think when you're telling, asking this question for the first time, I think it's like good to kind of give that like header into it. But for others, I will usually just say things like, so do you think you're taking your medications every day? Do you think you're taking them like a couple times a week or like five or six times a week? Like what? how many days a week do you think you're taking them? I, lo- I love your assume that they're not taking it as you prescribed it rather than expecting that they are. I, yeah, I think because- that, that then you're leveling your own expectations. Yeah, I I think if somebody is taking them exactly as prescribed, to me, that's usually more the exception mm-hmm. rather than the rule. And I think so putting it out there that that's OK and and expect it so that people also know that, yeah, it's it's OK to not do everything perfectly. I think I think as physicians, it's like the, we have this expectation that we come up with the plan. 
and we present it and then the patient just goes out and does it. Right. But we all, we all know that that's not, not, not the case. Not the case at all. So I think, I think, and I think it's okay to bring that into the space. Like there are some patients, for example, like I might make a referral to speech or a referral to genetics and it's like a year or two later and they still haven't gone. I think so, that probably happens a lot. And especially when you're sending people to therapy. Yes. Often, I think what the stats are, what, 20 or 30% actually go. And right. if they do go, they go for maybe four visits because right. it's hard. So it, it's we we have to definitely level our own expectations and probably our expectations for ourselves. Like don't, again, it's that back to that. Don't expect that you're going to fix these situations. You're, you're there to work with the family to figure out what matters to them and then how you can work towards some sort of plan. And, and it's going to come in bits and pieces. You're not, it's not going to happen all at once. And just be patient with that. And if you're expecting it, then you're not feeling like somehow you're falling short. Yeah. I, I have watch just I think with my training and education hat on I watch especially the trainees that when they take on the emotional or psychological burden themselves for a kid who's struggling or their ability to fix or change a situation I watch how much they themselves struggle with it that that this that this kid is struggling this home situation is so bad and I just feel helpless and I don't know what to do and Usually what I tell them is, I think you would be surprised how much even your caring is important in this situation. We know in the field of mental health, we know even in terms of therapy, that it is that therapeutic alliance that really is one of the main underlying mechanisms by which patients improve or change. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you care that you express that to the patient, that you continue to meet with them, you'd be surprised how important that is. Because if you even ask your patients, they'll, they themselves would tell you, like, we've met with physicians, we met with so-and-so, and it felt like they didn't care, or we asked for help and we we weren't heard. But I also think I noticed that there are, for some physician trainees especially, they really struggle with this idea of of not being able to fix it. And and I watch them kind of struggle through it. And one thing that I tell them is, as much as you want to fix it, you're not going home with the patient, right? So it's just not possible, right? Like in, in your mind, you may have this fantasy that you can. Right. The, the hero. Well, it makes me, as you're talking about this, it makes me think about in trying to fix something. I think about with parenting, you take away perhaps the opportunity for the family, the child, the youth to do it for themselves. Mm -hmm. And you're sort of like viewing yourself as kind of a, a rescuer. Yes. That that's not necessarily that helpful. And I did a podcast a few weeks ago with Heather Forkey, who does a lot of work in trauma with foster care kids. And, you know, what she was saying that when you're, when you're talking about how people survive and become resilient, it's a fight, flight and freeze are strategies for acute stressors. 
But what works in the long haul is affiliation with others. And then that's what, how we're designed. And so I think what you're talking about is our ability to affiliate with our patients and then for us then to affiliate with our colleagues, like I'm doing with you. And, and that's where I think sort of this ability to help people is to utilize relationships with folks like you in child psychiatry. And I know we've talked a lot about the fact that there aren't enough of you around, but, and I've had several podcasts about these child psychiatry access programs, but that is a way for us to affiliate and talk about so that you're not going to fix the problem I'm having with a patient, but you can listen to me, identify what I'm struggling with, give me some strategies. So it goes both ways, not only with the patients, but with how we provide care. Yes, absolutely. And I think the other day I was really, I thought a lot about what I heard one pediatrician say in terms of utilizing these types of services. And I thought he made a statement that was really powerful, which was in these types of collaborations between pediatricians and child psychiatrists or other subspecialists, one one way in which we can like further our efficacy is to learn how we, how each other thinks. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Right. And, well, I, and that is so important because it's I, actually not the, it's not the minute decision of like, do I start Lexapro or Zoloft or do I, but more the general approach. Yes. And a general intervention strategy. So like even with, and that's one thing during especially during training, you learn when you work with so many different people, right? You're like, you pick up this nugget from this person or this nugget from that person, from faculty supervisors. But I think the same is true with pediatric and mental mental health collaborations, that there's a lot that we can learn from each other. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, for me, and I've said this numerous times, I mean, it was a game changer. And I mean, I was already managing a lot of really complex care, which I think came as a surprise to the child psychiatrist, like, I had no idea that's what you were having to do. Mm-hmm. And so I got a lot of validation, like, you're doing a really good job. How can I help? What What are your pain points? But it was really exactly what you're talking about. Like, rather than going to, for an outburst, going to an atypical, which seemed like an easy, quote, fix, gosh, that came with so many other problems and might not have been the best approach. So for me, honestly, I changed my whole prescribing pattern once I learned how you thought about it. And I, it's hard for me because I know there are these programs out there. I know there, there are child psychiatrists available to do this work. And yet so many of us in primary care don't take advantage of it. And I, I rack my brain trying to figure out like what gets in the way of doing that because I mean, we're always asking for your help, and yet here is this help. Why am I not availing myself? I mean, do you have any thoughts about why that might be? I do. I think I I worry a little bit just like we see with our patients when they engage in negative self-talk around a difficult problem, right? And I see that occurring a lot in primary care, like I I didn't become a pediatrician to take care of mental health problems or I didn't train to do this or I didn't, I don't know what I'm doing or like, so all of those kind of 
negative cognition that end up kind of becoming barriers to change. Right? It's you're kind of talking about CBT for ourselves, like a reframe, mm-hmm. like these cognitive distortions, really, because mm-hmm. they're not true. I mean, we have had lots of skills. Yes. Meeting kids' yes. emotional needs and that minutia of like which medication to use. I mean, that honestly isn't the hard part. The hard no, part is holding space to yeah. hear people tell about difficult things and trying to ride the ride with them. That's the hard mm-hmm. part because it takes time. Yeah. I also think, I think, I wonder if there are also times or experiences when I think people are like, well, I, I really don't like to do this work. Mm-hmm. I think that's another challenge. And I think, I think it's just like any other, like how we tell our patients about managing something that's really challenging. Even, even if it's not something you like or prefer, one, like a big task that I always talk about in adolescence is learning how to kind of tolerate and work through that distress. Like, okay, if, if you're struggling with something, how can you find a way in which there is something positive? Because I think there are always going to be you're always going to run across how you're saying like a patient or a situation where you're like, wow, this is super hard. Mm-hmm. Well, but, if, whether it's a medical or mental health challenge. Absolutely. You know, we have yeah. plenty of patients that are have really complex medical and it, it can be really overwhelming to because there's so many bits and pieces and details. But I love that that frame of tolerating the distress. I mean, mm-hmm. I, again, this is sort of like therapy for primary care. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because, you're offering. <laughs> well, I mean, I think what I would say just to start with, and we said this at the beginning, is that the work that we do is really hard. Yes. It's yeah. just hard. And it, it asks a lot of us. Yes, it does. And so I think acknowledging that right at the get-go is important. And so that is where like really being able to find the good in a situation. I think about a really challenging patient that I have who's pretty chronically sick from like an autistic aggression standpoint. And I feel like I, I see pediatricians doing similar things. Like my favorite part of those visits is when he tells me the things that have given him joy or happiness in the la- from the time I saw him to the last time I saw him, right? I love that social connection part. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the part that kind of keeps me going in the visit. And then we have to kind of morph into talking about the really hard and difficult stuff. Right. Um, I, yeah. You're, you're, you're talking again about that, that affiliation piece, finding yes. the good, finding the joy. And so that brings me to, okay, we're going to recognize the work is hard. I think all of us 100% would agree with that, that it asks a tremendous amount. The rewards are high, but, you know, they're they're hard fought for. So that just circles right around to some of the wellness work that you're doing. So how do we keep our tank full? Because otherwise you could just feel, I think, the term, of course, burnout, that you've got nothing to give. Yeah, I... I think when we think about well-being, well-being is multifaceted. I think as a physician, an important part in your workday is really thinking about what are the aspects of your work that give you meaning 
and to be intentional about it. Mm. So if for you, it is the patient connection that you are like intentionally paying attention to the moments that those are occurring. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I got to hear a lot of really cool stuff about these many patients today and, and giving yourself, like you've probably heard about that well-being strategy of like thinking about three things that like give you gratitude, mm-hmm. right? And like focusing on that. This is a similar strategy, but around meaning, meaning in your work. I like think- what were the aspects yeah, of your work today that you found meaningful? Well, and I'm almost wondering if it's, do we set our intentions at the beginning of the day? Because I think what we do is we look at our schedules and then kind of we're already starting out perhaps overwhelmed, especially if they're patients that have lots of hard stuff going on for them. You're like, oh, so if you set your intentions, like I'm going to have three moments of joy. I'm going to laugh with somebody. I'm going to ask somebody about their vacation. I'm going to have fun with these patients and the other, the part that tap into the medical part, like I might like come up with a really good into something or a, make a great diagnosis. Okay. Maybe it's strep throat, but when you look and go, yep, that's strep or what I think is the most kind of makes you feel like, oh, I'm so skilled is doing a nursemaid's elbow. Probably not something you touch about psychiatry, but it's like so rewarding because you just do a little motion click and it's, it's instantly better. And that's a gift to go, oh my God, that was so much fun. So maybe if we, we're we looking for those things, recounting them then at the end of the day, but starting out with a different mindset. I Yeah, I think, yes, the frame that you provide to the work that you're doing on a daily basis and as a whole is really important. So that's what I meant about that self-talk component. Mm-hmm. Yes. And how important that is as you're approaching the work that you do. And then I would say that, and this I think is, can be challenging depending on your work environment is enhancing that sense of feeling like connection or belonging, I think is also important. So the question is, where do you find that? So for some people that might be like, you love your work colleagues for other people that is you know, you want to be part of a national organization. But for some people, and I think this is also important for us to recognize that maybe that isn't at work. Maybe that is in your your kids like soccer community and you mm-hmm. love those parents and that gives you a lot of meaning and that, that the work that you do allows you also to have these other kind of opportunities in your life that you have the ability to enjoy. And if that is something of value to you and your work is somehow encroaching on that in a way that is negative, how can you intentionally make change to prioritize the things that give you a sense of well-being? Yeah, it sounds like, so you said some really important things, finding connection, making meaning, belonging. I also think about confidence and feeling reward in the skills that we do have and honoring Mm -hmm. like I do know a lot of stuff. I am Mm -hmm. skilled at a lot of things to kind of give yourself a pep talk and then like nurturing these growth moments. I mean, a lot of times we have them in small moments with our colleagues Mm -hmm. when they share a difficult case or somebody made a great diagnosis. I mean, that is, you know, it's exciting. It's rewarding. Like when you figured out something really hard, but 
you know, again, I, I'm listening to you and thinking this is CBT for clinicians. <laughs> it really, it really is. What are the thoughts? What are the feelings that evokes? And then what are the behaviors that you're going to do to kind of help not go down the rabbit hole of like, I can't do this. It's too hard. It's not my job. Because at the end of the day, yeah, it is your job. Mm-hmm. It is. It yeah. is. But it doesn't have to be a bad job. It could be a fun job. Yeah, absolutely. And there are, and it's not that every moment has to be, but helping to train your brain to, because in general, our brains are kind of wired to pay attention more to the things that are negative or difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you kind of tend to over-focus on them. And so really kind of helping your, to retrain your brain to refocus on the things that are going well and that you do do well, I think is, it's such an important strategy. So you might, so I might think of an example, like when I did a visit with a trainee and she was just really distressed afterwards because the situation was really challenging and, and the kid, the kid's situation, I think may not improve as much as she would like it to. And she was just very upset about that. And to me, what I took out of that visit was like that this is a person with just a lot of empathy, a lot of empathy and care that they give out into the world. Well, and I think not underestimating that those moments that you spent caring and sharing in the family's distress, like, yeah, this really is hard, just kind of like we're doing for ourselves. This really is hard. I'm, I'm sorry that, that you're going through that. I'm here. How can I help? What can we work on together? Mm-hmm. That that is a huge gift to family. They want that more sometimes than what we envision yes. is our skill. I mean, that it, it goes down to an episode 100. We're going to talk a lot about it, but this art of medicine, that's mm-hmm. that's really what it boils down to. And it's not about being super smart about, I mean, yes, you have to have that, but it is about making meaning out of relationships, I think. I mean, it's just, yeah, and that's my two cents. <laughs> yeah, the patients are coming to see you because of that. Yes. They're coming to see you because they see you as an expert, as someone who could sit with them through difficulty and, and help them think about how to make things better. Yeah, and, I love and that's that. That's such a that- powerful role to sit with them and they come to you because they, because you care. Mm-hmm. And patients are very forgiving when you don't know stuff, mm-hmm. especially if you own up to it. Like, I'm not sure. And that's where, again, in reaching out to child psychiatry when we can is to say, I don't know the answer to this, or I'm not sure we've tried this, but you know, I have some colleagues that can be really helpful. I'd love to talk with them. And that doesn't make you look stupid. Like I'm supposed to know everything, but it actually I would think conveys confidence that you have enough sense to ask for help and expertise because you don't know everything. You just don't. I mean, we can't. Yeah. And, and I, I also think that there are many situations where, you know, patients come to us and we still, we still also don't know. Yeah. You know, we, we still won't. Oh, have. shoot. I thought you did. Yeah. I know. Right. I mean, like, we're, and someone will come to me, whether it's a pediatrician or even like one of my own child psychiatry. Fat, and I'm like, well, I mean, there's there's lots of potential things that are happening here. And I, I myself am not certain. I myself am not certain of the next best step. And sometimes, sometimes taking a step forward, a small one, 
will then give you the information that you need for the next small one. Right. Next small step. So, and so that's what I meant about having like a longitudinal perspective to the care, thinking about it as a journey that you're partnering with them on and that you're going to learn and figure out together over time. Well, I think that that's a perfect summary and end spot for us because it's where we started our longitudinal journey together talking about this. And I just so appreciate your insight. And I hope that listeners will take away this idea of we're not there to fix things. We're there to be with people to find out what matters most to them and to help them manage and strategize. And then taking joy in that and it being enough mm-hmm. that it, it is enough to just care about people. I mean, you got to have skills. I'm not saying you don't have to have education. You have to be smart, but you, you don't have to have all the answers and, and that's okay. And that's okay. Well, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and for spending time with me. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Of course. Of course. Well, take care. Bye. I don't know about you, but this was a mind shift for me and a huge aha, this idea that we don't have to fix things, but we need to kind of assess and help manage things. So here are my takeaways. Number one, all of us who care for children are overwhelmed by their emotional distress that they've been going through through the pandemic, but honestly, it was there before. The sadness, the worry, the school struggles. And for many of us, our training is to fix it. And and that's overwhelming because lots of these issues are not quick fixes or even fixes at all. Consider instead focusing on where you can make an impact. Number two, let the patient and family lead. Let them identify their greatest concerns and then partner with them on problem solving. Number three, partner with the family to seek change over time and help create really a working game plan using your expertise. Number four, pediatricians have the advantage of longitudinal relationships with families and kids. Psychiatrists have a point in time relationship. And and that was really helpful because I think we think about what we don't have when we can't access child psychiatry. But child psychiatry, they often envy what we have, those long relationships with our families. So it helps to kind of put ourselves in each other's shoes. Number five, our challenges. I mean, you already know these, right? High volume practice flow and the challenge of not enough time, the pressure of RVUs, documentation, in basket. Need I go on? Oh, and yes, you need a mental health clinician in your practice. If you really want to hear more about that, please take a listen to episode number 91. You can afford it. Number six, reframe mental health care using a chronic illness model that includes more frequent visits, maybe every three months, even and and perhaps especially when things are going well, because then when things are difficult, you can go back to, hey, things haven't always been like this and what worked in the past. Number seven, put patients in the driver's seat. Expect non-adherence to your prescribing, but go further and ask why. What are the barriers? Are there side effects? Because ultimately, it's up to the patient to consider treatment and to actually take the medication or not. Number eight, lean on our child and adolescent psychiatrists and use child psychiatry access programs. I've probably said this, I don't know, a gazillion times on the podcast, and I'm again including the national network map so you can see 
where your state is and their contact information so you can get signed up. Number nine, a word of caution. Do not take on the burden of your families on yourself to fix or cure the patient. It will lead to helplessness and distress. It's just not possible. What you have most to offer is your alliance and care for the child and the family to ride the ride with them. Number 10, Dr. Mohia Dean's words for our care. Our own care are truly what I think of as a CBT model. Are you engaging in negative self-talk? I mean, this was kind of an eye-opener for me to, to hear her say that. This may lead to avoidance of offering mental health care. I mean, so if you're thinking, this isn't what I trained for, this is too hard, oh, I don't want to go see that patient, it's always so difficult. Instead, consider tolerating the discomfort of dealing with the emotional needs and mental health needs by focusing on positive self-talk, because you have a lot more to offer than you imagine. Number 11, the work. Our work is hard and asks a lot of us. Find the good, the joy, and affiliate, in the words of Dr. Heather Forkey, with your colleagues to create a culture of number 12, a reframe. Families and patients see us because we see them. You care for them. You offer expertise. You ask for help and research questions as you work through concerns. This is a demonstration of your expertise, not a lack of it. And number 13, as you begin your day, set your intention to find joy and meaning and remind yourself of your skills. You've got this and nurture growth and seek knowledge. Thank you so much for all that you do and for your willingness to stretch a little bit further and just do a little bit more, perhaps in a different way, to think about things differently. Because in doing that, you may find your work is easier. Please take care of yourselves and enjoy summer vacation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.